welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is our 82nd edition. I can't think of anything hugely interesting about the number 82, other than it's the country code for South Korea, and it's the number of games in the NHL and NBA seasons, if you don't count the playoffs, and in a season not completely decimated by coronavirus. One thing that I should mention before we get started this week is if you hear some strange noises in the background, it's not your computer, it's not my computer. There's a bird's nest outside of my office window. The joys of working at home. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and there have been some changes this week around the world as some countries emerge very slowly from lockdowns, although not to the same world as it was before. No sporting events to go and watch, or concerts, or eating out in restaurants, at least for the foreseeable future. We do have the Bundesliga coming back this weekend, and speaking of Germany, trying a seamless link, we ran a story this week on the German government saying that trade shows are now allowed, with restrictions of course. Personally, I've got no idea how that's going to work. Anyone who has ever been to Vita Foods or Seattle or Golf Food or any of the big shows will have memories, sometimes painful, of the crowds. I know I've stood on train platforms waiting for a train I could get on while people squash themselves in and then all flock into the event. So clearly the entire process from hotels to transportation to the event to actually the event itself, it's going to have to change, at least in the short term. Probably it's going to mean face masks and some form of social distancing. And then there's international travel. Will some countries still under lockdown be allowed? Will they even be allowed back into their home country without quarantine? So there are many questions still to be answered. As we discussed on the show last week in the interview with Summerdale International, companies may choose not to even attend shows and some companies may have wiped off their budgets for travel this year just to save some money. On the other side of the coin, the trade show industry is absolutely massive. The exhibition sector generates $81.1 billion a year, give or take a few cents, and if it was a country, it would be the 56th biggest economy in the world. I wonder how it would do in the Olympics, if they weren't postponed as well. And so, before we get to the rest of this week's news, who's on this week's show? Well, we have Torben Jensen, Senior Category Manager, FDP, at Arla Foods Ingredients, talking about the company's clean label ambient yogurt concept for the Chinese market. Joe Rumiano, CEO of Rumiano Cheese Company, which has set up Board at Home, which is delivering artisanal cheese and other products in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. But we also have a bonus from INTL FC Stone, as we also had a chat with Nate Donne, Director of Dairy Market Insight. All right, let's have a look at some of the articles we've had on DairyReporter.com this week. Not quite as many as last week, but still definitely more than usual for this time of year. We've had a couple more articles about how companies are helping out in the fight against coronavirus. The dairy industries in both Canada and the UK have been given a boost through government funding during the crisis. The UK dairy industry has launched a £1 million promotional campaign, and there are changes happening in the structure of Danone essential dairy and plant-based divisions in North America. Hochdorf is liquidating three subsidiaries, and Tetra Pak has launched a complete processing line for white cheese. It's hard to believe, but there are less than 160 business days left before the end of the year and Brexit becomes a reality, unless, of course, it's delayed again. Regardless, a future EU-UK dairy framework for how to handle the industry after Brexit has been set out by the EDA. There have been demonstrations, some involving milk powder around Europe, as the EMB protests against storage intervention and pushes for its volume reduction program to be implemented. And Detection Technology has rolled out its new X-ray camera series. There's a new report on dairy and plant proteins in weight management and healthy ageing from 3A Business Consulting, and Amcor has reported its financials for the first three quarters. And you can find these and many more on DairyReporter.com. So on with the show. 
Our first guest this week is Torben Jensen, Senior Category Manager, FDP at Arla Foods Ingredients. The company has developed a new clean label ambient yogurt concept for the Chinese market, which is what we chatted about. Clearly, when it comes to launching products and concepts for the Chinese market, you must have good on the ground market research that shows you exactly what you should be working on for those markets? Of course, we have people out there. Uh, that's our main source, so to say, because uh, local people know more about what is going on. Of course, you can always look in uh, Mintel and all the other search programs, um, and here you often get what has happened in the past, what, what is the launches and all this, and not so much what do we believe is going to be launched in the future. So, of course, we listen very much to the local people and also to our customers. What is a hot topic for them at the moment and what would they like to, to produce? The message is uh, clean label is important, getting more and more important for them. But not to have uh, e-numbers and uh, stuff like Santan or whatever you use to, to stabilize yogurt. So this is getting more and more important. These are concepts. This isn't an actual product for to go s straight to market. It's something that you would show to your customers in the region? Yeah, we, we will produce the yogurt, so to speak and present it together with a recipe and of course together with these uh, marketing uh, stuff we have about the market and what we believe and uh, explain these uh, opportunities for them to start working on on a new uh, recipe so basically it is about the product and the recipe and this is using neutralite uh, yeah, for exactly. 575 so what what exactly is neutralite uh, it's a pure whey protein it's a whey protein, uh, especially developed to to stand a, a heat treatment at, at low pH, which you do in these uh, ambient products. So when you produce ambient yogurt, you, you do a standard yogurt, and after the fermentation, you do a, a short heat treatment to kill all the bacteria. You're also killing the yogurt bacteria. So you, you have a, a long shelf-life product, which can stand... Uh, ambient storage and at uh, up to six to nine months. So would it be clean label and high protein? The, the protein level is, well, it, it's more or less standards around 3.4% uh, protein in, in the yogurt. So it's not what we we in, in Western Europe call high protein, but it's a little bit higher than a standard yogurt in China, which is normally around 2.8% protein. So it's, it's a little bit protein enriched, but that's not the main argument here. The main argument is uh, that you can produce this long shelf life yogurt without adding uh, e-numbers. And is this something that the Chinese consumer is specifically looking for now? Yeah, they are looking for a more clean label, and especially for their kids, actually. Are there other uh, components to this Nutrilac series? Is it part of a portfolio of products? It is a product series that we have, so all our proteins we call Nutrilac, and, and then it has uh, different names, so the names is uh, just defining where it can be used, uh, and and this 74, uh, 75, no, 45, 75 is, as I said, specially developed to be heat-stable. Normally when you heat milk protein, a whey protein, a low pH, it will precipitate. And then you will have a lot of uh, lumps and uh, precipitation of the protein in the final product. But this protein can stand this heat treatment without being protected by pectin or any other additives. And is it already being used in products in other parts of the world? Yes, it is. Uh, we are selling this today already. Uh, also for other applications like uh, protein-enriched uh, drinking yogurt. It's also used here because it's not giving viscosity and it's not affected by the heat treatment. So it doesn't increase the viscosity when you heat it. China's an obvious market. You already have, I assume, customers out there that are interested in this kind of product. Yeah, we are already selling other products in China, of course, for for other reasons than this uh, ambient yogurt, more for texturizing and and to in increase protein level. 
So, so this is a, just to answer this, uh, it's a very big market, these ambient yogurt in China. And you've created three varieties, the vanilla, peach and green tea. Are those, uh, those are particularly relevant to that market? Yes. Again, we here we work together with our local people. They have been part of this uh, in the tasting session to to decide which flavor we should uh, recommend. Of course, this is not part of our concept, so to speak. It's just uh, to bring real products to our uh, to the client to inspire them and to have a finished product ready, so they can just order the products that we have on the ingredient list, and then they can produce. So there's plenty of opportunities for, and, and I assume that you would work with the company to work on exactly how the final product is. You wouldn't just sort of sell them the the products if they wanted to come up with another flavor. You can work on them, yes. work with them on the exact formulation. Yeah, that's that's also part of what we are offering actually, and and we do that a lot when we present this. Uh, concept and uh, the client find it interesting uh, then we normally talk to the the marketing people in at the customer but of course after accepting in marketing it has to be produced it has to be uh, feasible to their production line in the factory so after that we we normally talk to the R&D people and their production managers how to implement this uh, new product so we offer to go to the factory and help them to start production. Uh, of course, they can also come to us. We have the pilot plant in Denmark uh, and also a small pilot in China where, where they can come. But normally all the issues or some of the issues, the problems, the questions is easier to answer at the customer's place because there you can see, okay, what is the, the critical uh, parameters in the process? What is the critical uh, process uh, if they miss uh, some mixer or if you have to change temperature or pressure whatever so we have the uh, technical guys who uh, are able to to help and assist the the producers on the floor so to speak and i guess as well with china being such a huge and varied market it would vary from region to region not just in the 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 plants would be different and also the the tastes of the local consumers would be different everything is different yeah also sometimes the milk is also even uh, different uh, of course it, it can be different in in the composition in the fat and protein level and uh, and of course also taste is, is different from place to place there is a difference also if you go to south america we have another culture so to speak in the dairy industry so uh, you have to adapt to the local uh, local way of producing because you have different ways of producing things depending on the on the area you are working in you cannot just uh, copy a dairy in, in Denmark and then say okay this is how you do it <laughs> uh, maybe it's not the way they do it in, in China so you have to to adapt and to be able to to think uh, creative when you have a uh, an issue or something you have to solve at the customer place. Of course, it's uh, we know it works like we present it. There might be slight changes uh, around the world, and and here we are ready to offer our assistant to make it work at the customer with slight changes in the recipe. Has the I hate to mention coronavirus, but has has that been an issue in terms of? Obviously, you have all of these concepts, but in order to go to China and to work with the customers, how are you finding that in the current climate? It's of course a big, uh, a big issue for us because we normally present person to person these things because we believe that's the the best way. We we travel to China, we travel to Argentina, wherever we go, and present these things and have a dialogue with the customers at meetings, face-to-face -face meetings, where we bring our products and bring our recipes and then we have a discussion with them. How do we see this? Could that be interesting for you? What uh, challenges do you see in the recipe when we go through the, the process, uh, if they see any, and how can we solve these? So, of course, yes, we miss a lot to be able to visit our customers. How are you getting around there at the moment? 
we have to wait and see and we have to uh, work even closer to our local people because china is now open for the local people they can go to the office uh, again at least they can they can start having <laughs> a dialogue with their customers again the only thing we miss is people from denmark going to china and go to the customers together with our local uh, sales people in in china uh, it will change and uh, we are ready Next, we head over to the Bay Area, San Francisco, California, to talk about a project that has hit the ground running because of the coronavirus epidemic. A lot of smaller food producers have had their markets ripped apart by the coronavirus crisis, but some have tried to find innovative new ways to survive and even thrive. The Rumiano Cheese Company is one such operation, which has set up Board at Home, which is delivering artisanal cheese and other products in the San Francisco Bay Area. And to tell us more about what's happening is Joe Rumiano, CEO of the Rumiano Cheese Company. Uh, Rumiano is a fourth-generation family-owned business, started in 1919 by three immigrant brothers from Italy, as the name would imply was the third largest cheese operation in the United States during World War II. Eight plants up and down the West Coast went through some changes. And then more recent, uh, very early mover in uh, the organic space. And so we're really a major player in the organic cheese business and then other related better for you categories. So two primary operations, manufacturing up in the northwest corner of California in the temperate rainforest, Jersey, small to mid-sized Jersey, herds up there, and then we have packaging and distribution just north of Sacramento. Uh, one kind of legacy plant there, and we're just breaking ground on a second packaging plant about three miles away there in Northern California. And what kind of products do you sell, and, and where are they sold? You know, the business has changed a little bit in the last 60 to 75 days, as you would imagine. Historically, you know, we look at the market as California, Western United States, and national. On a national basis, you know, we have a leading organic uh, brand, Rumiano Organics. So that's found in all 50 states. Kind of in the kind of second tier Western United States, it's really a combination of our grass-fed and organic retail lines, as well as other things in the food service and related. You know, California, we like to think of ourselves as hometown favorite. So we have a, a number of both artisanal lines, as well as uh, kind of center of the plate. Historically, food service was fairly heavily weighted in our packaging operations, but you know things have changed fairly quickly, and so you know, we're certainly retail-centric, and our outbound strategy probably tends to be more retail-centric, which is where we're headed, but this has certainly accelerated that. So when all of this started a couple of months ago, schools started to close and restaurants and things were very rapidly changing. What was your sequence of events and how did you respond to that? Um, well, the, you know, for us, you know, it, the end of February was actually fairly normal. Uh, but then it was the week of kind of the 7th, 14th, and that those first two weeks when things really accelerated. It, you know, first with things like sports team and then schools and then fairly quickly, of course, bars and restaurants within, you know, second weeks of March, uh, then everything you know, everything really changed very dramatically. You know, the, we had really two weeks where we have a, a redistribution business that services distributors for food service up from Portland to San Francisco. That was felt immediately. So kind of very quickly, that knob went pretty quick to zero. Kind of the following week, we have this indirect food service and more kind of chains and that sort of thing. And then that, that decreased pretty rapidly in that second week. So kind of a, for us, it was a, a two-week period kind of an initial shock of our direct food service-related business than our indirect following weeks. I wouldn't say it went to zero, but it went, <laughs> it went down fairly dramatically. And so, you know, at the same time, our retail business, you know, we had the pantry loading phase, and it took all of the resources and then some that was, that was originally dedicated to food service. So March was very much chaos uh, as we pivoted and then, you know, kind of took a breath as we you know, the first week of April and into this next phase. And so, you know, and then that's been kind of a couple of phases of, you know, retail kind of after the pantry loading into this, whatever this next phase of normal is. So we're, we want, we're watching it literally daily in terms of how things are changing. 
when it comes to setting up new ideas often they take years to come to fruition i guess when you're looking at something <laughs> like this board at home how, what are you mm -hmm. talking about minutes or hours or how, how did <laughs> how did that come about yeah that's the crazy thing about these kind of times and we we don't ever want to minimize any anyone suffering but it creates opportunities to act to, to respond to a market need and especially given you know, we're vertically integrated so you know, from processing, manufacturing, all the way through to packaging and distribution, uh, we're completely vertically integrated. And so what that does, it allows us to take a concept from an idea to field operation very quickly as the market, you know, dictates. And so we haven't always done that, you know, we just, because there's so many competing priorities, but, you know, there's certain clarity that happens during a time of crisis. And so, you know, we were, I think it was probably... From idea to first prototype execution serving customers was about 14 days. So something that I guarantee you would have taken months, six to nine months in the old world of kind of competing priorities and a whole bunch of things certainly went from zero to execution very, very quickly. It was uh, inspiring, to be honest with you, to see this come together to serve an unmet need and then also kind of break through some, you know, what happens in any organization, you know, especially an organization that's 101 years old and is fairly diversified and large. How do we, you know, use these times to rethink how we go to market? Obviously, you've got a name for this and, and how many people were involved mm -hmm. in all of this, this, this decision making as to how you put this together. I'm kind of interested mm -hmm. as to mm -hmm. how it all mm -hmm. started. Well, maybe start with the compelling problem. It was largely about our community of cheesemakers in California, you know, being the oldest, we also are the oldest member in a community of a vibrant community of, of cheesemakers, you know, both small and large, small cheesemakers, especially those, you know, that are really artisanal and those products were going into restaurants or high end cheesemonger cases, you know, their business changed very dramatically and they really couldn't pivot quickly to retail, you know, and plus people were buying really center of the plate proteins and not necessarily loading up on you know, large amounts of, of artisanal. And so you know, we are the member of the, the Cheese Guild that really took that problem. You know, we heard about the problem and say, we're, we're really concerned. We're really nervous. How do we deal with that? And so we listened to that. And then we listened to folks like Ben and Nicole and others to say, hey, there's an unmet need here, which is that our consumers still need to have some small celebrations through this regardless. And we have beautiful cheeses and beautiful cheesemakers that are out there, how do we put that together? And so it was really a very quick process. You know, we allocated a kind of a small amount of capital and some bootstrap resources, and I would say a handful, you know, less than five people who came together to kind of solve the e-commerce problem, solve the last mile logistical problem, how do we assemble the boxes, how do we deal with legal issues? It was, uh, you know, we kept it, I would say, skunk works, very kind of very quiet and kind of very focused before we really brought it forward. And so uh, it was, I think, a great effective example of how to incubate something fairly quickly. And have you had to tweak it much as you've gone along? Or has it been pretty much what you started out, set out to do has stayed the same? I would say tweaking. It's like any startup, it will continue to pivot. You know, the economy opens and closes and opens and closes. We have to adapt to that. And so, you know, so we'll adapt the business model accordingly. You know, I think fundamentally it hasn't really changed. We partner with, you know, the concept is cheese meets wine, right? So it's all about cheese, but it's also about wine. So we need, we're not in the liquor or wine business, so we always need a partner. And so the concept of partnering with a wine and related partner in each major market has not changed. It's just in terms of how we actually get then source the product, package it, get it to the market with our partner. Those things certainly have changed a little bit and will we'll continue to change you know, as we try to serve our customers better. And, and are those partners coming to you or are you having to reach out to them? I think a little of both. Yeah, I think uh, especially now that we have you know, some, uh, I'd say, early days of notoriety in terms of storytelling, I think it's happening both on the cheese as well as on the wine side. You know, we're just really look at this kind of market by market and opportunity in terms of we remember our first problem, which is that how do we help our small 
artisanal cheesemakers. That's the first goal of all of this. This is not, you know, uh, the wine and the e-commerce is a vehicle to do that, but ultimately it's about primarily helping artisanal cheesemakers. Sure. And how does it work in terms of people go online and, and book this and how do they, how does it all work for, for the consumer? Yeah, it's, you know, it's completely an e-commerce. It's a, a primary site that people find and they can find it through our existing website or social media or our partner sites, but ultimately they end up at Board at Home. From there, they tell us where they, where they want it shipped, which tells us who the partner is, which tells us the rules of the engagement. And so, and that's really done behind the scenes. So the customer doesn't really have to think about that. They just have to tell us where they live, what they want to buy, where they want it delivered. And then the rest of it's really behind the scenes fulfilled by our team as well as our wine partner. And is it like a, a mix and match, or it's just a, you get the, you've got the small and the the large kits, or, or can uh, people pick and choose? A small amount of picking and choosing, you know. So we'll evolve as the as the, our customers. We're trying to keep it as simple as possible, and for, with us and our wine partners curating. And so the goal here is we mix it up in terms of the selection ongoing, you know, kind of consistent with our sourcing standards of first helping our local artisanal community as well as what the wine should be from a principal standpoint but yeah it's, so it's not a huge wine catalog it's not a mix and match in terms of what it, out of 50 cheeses what three do you want it's really we curate and change on an ongoing basis so people can can they opt into like a subscription basis where they can have one delivered every x number of days or every week or whatever We'd like that. Yeah, that was that's a great idea. You know, we've talked about that, but you know, we're in the early days, and and that's uh, the answer is yes. That would be fantastic. And I think as we go forward, I, that's that's our hope. Right. And by, by doing that, then you can sort of expose people to products that they've probably never experienced before. Absolutely. You know, we you know, we want this to be a an ongoing experience. You know, so in terms of uh, meeting the makers, we'd like to be able to have video content. That's our intention is to have video content and interviews with the makers, virtual classes in terms of how to pair different wines and cheeses. So it's you know, our, our goal is to have a, a rich, engaging experience with these consumers ongoing. You know, I think this is not a, you know, for us, this is not a one and done. This is not just about the crisis. This is about using this moment to build trust relationships with both the artisanal community as well as these consumers throughout California. That's being done online. Obviously, I assume you're doing quite a bit of social media around this as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and through our channels, you know, through the kind of the board at home, but also the Rumiano and also our partners. You know, it's an ongoing. You know, how do we storytell? I mean, that's our job. Is we have this community of of artisans who are so busy every day. They're milking animals, making cheese, trying to figure this thing out. They don't have time to storytell in many cases. So part of what we are doing is helping, how do we amplify their voice? And so you know, we think that that's not a, it's not a new problem. It's, it's a more important problem and it's, it's a problem that's not going to go away. So how do we, how does this collaboration continue to provide those kind of services for, for these, these small makers? It's just available in the Bay Area right now or is it going to expand? No, it's not. So we, we just were excited to announce that it's gone live this morning in Los Angeles. So we have a partner up in the kind of uh, west side of Los Angeles that opened up uh, that market today, which is a great important market for California. 22 million people south of the Hatchbees, as you know. Uh, we have done a test run with a nonprofit in Orange County uh, over the last three weeks. It's been really great. This more of that's more of a curbside pickup, part of their CSA and farm share program. Uh, and we're certainly looking at other markets as well as uh, anywhere overnight in in California model. And will you adjust the amount of offerings that you have, other than just the small and large kit? Do you plan on doing other things? Would uh, whatever. Uh, is reasonable and the market wants. I mean, I think we're, the goal here is how do we be responsive? And, you know, we have to balance the economics and shipping costs and the partners and that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, our goal is to, you know, to build a relationship and have our consumers tell us what they're interested in and have our artisanal community tell us what they believe should be communicated. And so, you know, we're, you know, we have this across California and certainly Northern California in these rural areas, there is a a deep set of artisans and winemakers with great products that we that we intend to bring to market. 
So I guess there's also an opportunity for the end consumer to help you develop this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the great thing about not only the e-commerce, but, you know, we have with social, you know, we, we have a chance to relate to people and the, this, this two-way communication. So that's what, we're, that's what we're hoping for. And what's the reaction been like to it so far? You know, I think you know, the commercial side has been really encouraging the first few weeks of this. And we are creating happy consumers to see postings of the excitement of opening the box, you know, to introduce people to these cheeses and other artisanal uh, is, you know, I think it's been a lot of fun. And I think for, for, from the consumer's perspective, it's been a, a great project. I think there's always complexity and logistics and all that stuff, but to hear consumers say how excited they were to get to know a particular wine or a particular cheese has been really encouraging. For those of you who listen to the show every week, first of all, you deserve a medal, or maybe you just fast forward to the guests. But if you do listen every week, you'll be familiar with Liam Fenton and Charlie Highland, who supply us with our weekly update on the global dairy markets, which have also, of course, been dominated by COVID-19 for a while now. So we thought that as INTL FC Stone has issued its most recent report, we might have a little more in-depth look at what's going on. And that was a chat with Nate Donay, who is director of Dairy Market Insight at the company. There are so many different aspects to the global dairy industry. Are they all reacting similarly to the crisis right now? For the most part, New Zealand pricing has not been as volatile. It's been more steady. Uh, European and U.S. prices have been moving in uh, the same direction and by roughly the, the same magnitude, although the movements have been a little bit more extreme in the U.S., uh, I think part of the reason there is that we have a more fluid and active market here in the U.S. In some of the recent moves that we've seen in the last two or three years, they at least become apparent quicker in the U.S. market. We have this active spot market that trades every day. We have uh, a whole bunch of different dairy product futures that trade actively. And so sometimes we'll all of a sudden see um, pricing in the U.S. starting to move higher for reasons that don't really make sense from just a U.S. perspective. But if you look at what's happening in Europe and you look at it more of a global perspective, you say, OK, well, if somebody in Europe was trying to hedge their risk on the U.S. market, this would make sense. Uh, so some of the decline that we started to see in U.S. pricing, I think, was actually coming from Europe. The pandemic, you know, got a foothold in Europe a little bit before the U.S. And so we're we're seeing more and more sort of cross-regional hedging. So companies and traders in Europe using the U.S. market to offset some of their EU or global price risk. And I guess there would be hemisphere differences anyway, because in the northern hemisphere, it's coming up to peak season, and whereas it's not in the southern hemisphere. So one of the concerns or one of the rumors on the uh, GDT New Zealand pricing that we've heard over the past two months is that Chinese importers brought in a whole bunch of powder, uh, as they always do in January. And that was right in the middle of their lockdowns and drops in consumption. So the traders were left holding a lot of extra powder that they purchased at, you know, December and, and November pricing. And so they haven't wanted to see global prices or GDT pricing drop off significantly, which would lower the value of the inventory that they're holding. So there's been some rumors that uh, some traders within China have been active buyers on GDT just to support the price to hold up the value of their inventory uh, until they can get that inventory sold to end users inside of China and then they'll back away from the market. Uh, I never know with these kinds of rumors how much of it to believe or not, um, but I, I would give it a, a little bit of credence. One of the things is if we look back, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, pretty much everybody was in lockdown, but now we're starting to see some countries are coming out of it more quickly than others like China. And, and then we've got Spain, Germany, Italy starting to show signs of some some kind of move back to normal. Is is that going to make a big difference as everybody seems to be taking different approaches? 
It's going to be interesting to see. Here in the U.S., we saw food service sales starting to improve during April, even though nearly every state was still in lockdown during April. Some of the improvement in food service consumption started even while people were still locked down. Um, now that the lockdowns are being lifted, we expect to see a continued improvement in those food service sales. It's just not clear how much of an improvement the removal of stay-at-home orders is really going to make. Uh, I mean, one thing that gets confusing in all of this is what were the restrictions during lockdown in these different countries and states, and how much are they really loosening? Uh, when I talked to our team members in Dublin, during their lockdown, they were initially, you know, only able to leave to, to pick up groceries or go to medical appointments, and they could only exercise, I think, within two kilometers of their residence outdoors. Here in the state of Minnesota, we kept hardware stores open, we kept auto parts stores open, big box retailers like Walmart because they sell food, because they, they sell stuff for maintaining your house and your car, they all remained open. We were allowed to go anywhere outside for exercise. We were allowed to drive anywhere we wanted for pleasure, uh, which is a giant loophole. So as we start to remove some of the restrictions that we have in Minnesota, we were already much less restricted than Ireland was, right? And, and when Ireland is, is lifting their restrictions, they're now allowing you to exercise within five kilometers of your house. But a lot of stuff still remains closed. And so it gets a little bit tricky to talk about countries lifting restrictions because we weren't all locked down to the same degree and the level of loosening is significantly different depending on the uh, locality that you're looking at. But I got to believe that as we loosen restrictions, people will venture out a little bit more. And we've already seen it in the numbers even while we were locked down people were starting to shift a little bit back towards food service already. That's a, a major one, isn't it? And especially in some markets, is food service just pretty much collapsed overnight, really? What we saw in the U.S. was the last week of March, food service sales were down about 67% from year-ago levels. By the last week in April, they were only down 47%. So that's a 20-point that's a improvement in the food service sales over the course of a month, even while we were all locked down, but it still leaves us 47% below year ago levels. And it varies by dairy product, but um, we think somewhere between 30 and 45% of our, our dairy products are, well, cheese and butter at least, are moving through food service. So it's, it's a big hit to the demand side when food service sales are down that much that would affect what cheese and butter mostly right yeah mostly cheese and butter and particularly cheese we love our pizzas here in the u.s mozzarella is the largest type of cheese that we eat and nearly all of it is on pizza and then on top of it we have the hamburgers and, and cheeseburgers which are obviously affected by the the drop in food service sales and so what's happening in that situation? I assume cheese dropped quite dramatically in terms of price? Yeah, we dropped from about $1.80 a pound uh, to $1 a dollar a pound over the course of two months. We've bounced back since then, but it's, it's an interesting problem. Some cheesemakers simply cut back cheese production dramatically. There are some cheese plants that are owned by commercial companies who are making cheese primarily for food service. So they were able to tell the dairy cooperatives, no, we, we don't need the milk, we don't want the milk, we can't take the milk, and uh, simply cut back their cheese production to try to, to match up production with demand, although they likely still uh, produced more than they could sell. But then that leaves the milk with the cooperatives, and the cooperatives now have to find a use for that milk. Some of it got dumped on the ground during the, the worst stages, some of it got run through butter plants and through um, milk powder plants, and some of it ran through the cooperative's own cheese plants. And now the cooperatives are trying to find an outlet for that cheese. When you look at the graph in your current report for global cheese prices, the line for the U.S. is markedly different from the situation that we've seen in Europe and also in Oceania. How would you explain that? 
One, it's poor European data. I'm using the uh, Gouda price from the EU Commission, their weekly report of price, and it's it's not reflecting the declines that we've seen in the actual market. But like I said, that the U.S. dropped to about a dollar a pound. It's about $22 a ton. European Gouda, from what we have heard, dropped to about $2,400 a ton last week. So at least Gouda versus U.S. Cheddar, the, the pricing has dropped off by a comparable amount, although uh, European Cheddar pricing is, is still holding at a premium, and then Oceania Cheddar well above that. And some of it is just that delay in actual spot prices in Europe showing up in some of the official indices. Again, some of it is just some peculiar issues going on with GDT and Oceania pricing. But eventually, European and Oceania pricing is going to have to shift down uh, to a competitive level against the U.S., or the U.S. is going to take a big chunk of the global trade. In that chart, it's U.S. cheddar. You mentioned mozzarella being the biggest in terms of yep. usage. Would that follow a similar pattern? Yeah, in the U.S., mozzarella is typically sold at a, a spread to the cheddar price. So three cents above cheddar or, or a penny below cheddar, um, that type of thing. So the mozzarella pricing would follow right along. When you look at the the graphs for SMP and and butter, they're they're relatively similar. They have lined up more precisely, and they usually do, uh, especially on the powder. Uh, The U.S. is exporting more than half of our powder production. Europe's exporting more than half. Um, You know, New Zealand's exporting all of it. So we're we're all highly competitive and pushing a lot of volume. We, We really can't afford to price ourselves out of that market. And so the prices tend to follow each other pretty closely for, uh, at least for the powder. The butter is a little bit more variable depending on what's happening in the individual markets. But in terms of the decline that we've seen this year, uh, the drop in the U.S. and Europe has has been pretty much spot on with each other. And in terms of where those graphs go from here, obviously it's up in the air, but what what are you starting to see as trends in, in cheese and also butter and SMP? We've seen pricing in the U.S. and Europe bounce higher. Two or three weeks ago, we were expecting some skim milk powder to be sold in the intervention in Europe, and so far, nothing has. And the offers have been coming up, and, and the bids have been chasing it a little bit. So short term, we're getting a bounce. I think, one, it's it's um, the food service sales have been improving. There's some optimism with the lockdowns being lifted. Some of the headline milk production numbers in Europe haven't been that great. The the weekly collections running below year ago levels in France, Germany, and the UK. So there's there's a little bit of strength in the market. My concern is, you know, if you look back at some of the other declines in prices, if you go back to 2015, 2016, we had periods where, you know, over that entire period, we were in a dramatic oversupply on a global basis. Uh, thanks to the slowdown in Chinese imports and the uh, Russian ban on imports. But we still had periods where there was some general strength. We get a rally in the market for a month or two, and then it would drop back off again. And I think that's the situation that we're in. When I work through our demand models, the biggest single driver is economic growth. And we're clearly in the worst global recession in decades, you know, possibly since the, the Depression, although World War II arguably would, would uh, rival it as well. But, you know, the, the worst economic growth in more than 50 years, that is going to be a serious drag on dairy demand for the remainder of this year. So I have a hard time getting too bullish on prices overall when we're facing that type of demand situation. So we're, we're getting some strength but I don't know how long-lived that strength will be, and at least for global butter and powder prices, I don't think we're going to continue to trend higher from here. I think we're going to pull back and kind of bounce around at these low levels for another couple of months before the supply side starts to adjust, and uh, we potentially get some upside uh, later in the calendar year. 
in the report it mentions the fact that if you can get food service back up to 20% and the government's buying a lot of cheese, then th there could be growth in cheese. Is that going to happen? Yeah. Here in the U.S., because the USDA is being so aggressive in purchasing dairy products, we could turn around the U.S. market uh, a little bit sooner. Uh, it may already have turned around uh, compared to European and Oceania pricing. Uh, I wrote the report on Thursday, and then late on Friday, the USDA announced that um, they were going to be buying significantly more product in May and June than what we had anticipated. The USDA has created this new food box program where they are finding companies who will buy commodities, consumer-sized commodities, put them into a box, you know, a couple of things in there, a, a, a block of cheese, um, maybe some yogurt and a jug of milk and deliver those boxes to nonprofit organizations like food shelves or, or church groups who will distribute them to people in need. This is a whole new program. They'd initially said that they would be buying about $100 million worth of dairy products a month through this program. And late on Friday, they announced that for May and June, they were buying a total of uh, well, at least $320 million worth of dairy products. So about double what we were expecting. And that has uh, boosted the U.S. market significantly on, on Friday and Monday. So with the level of purchasing that the U.S. government is doing, if we see a continued improvement in underlying commercial demand combined with the higher government purchases, uh, we do have the possibility of turning around the U.S. market faster than uh, what we'll see in European and New Zealand pricing. And as far as the that U.S. intervention into buying products, is that going to have to continue for a specific length of time in order for there to be some turnaround? Yeah. Um, the expectation, well, they, they have a number of different pools of money that they're using to purchase this product. There's there's the food box program. There's another pool of money that comes from, uh, they call it Section 32. There's another pool of money that was allocated by two different stimulus bills that Congress has passed. And there's, I believe, still money in a pot um, to help offset the negative impact of the trade wars uh, called trade mitigation purchases. And so there's four different pools of money, and we could be talking about something like $1.2 billion worth of dairy purchases here in the remainder of this year. Or maybe that extends into the first quarter of next year, too. Uh, so it, it, it adds up to a lot of potential product. And what other things are you seeing in the markets right now? The other big variable that we're trying to deal with is what is happening on the supply side um, with, with milk production. Most of the major cooperatives and milk buyers here in the U.S. have uh, sort of set up a, a, a quota and over quota pricing system for at least the next couple of months. Uh, these processors back in March and April, at least early April, were seeing a, a massive decline in orders from food service. The schools had shut down. Uh, they were having to physically dump milk. And so they started sending out letters to the farmers saying, we need you to cut production by 5%, 10%, or 15% from some base level. Some of them used the month of March as the base level. Some of them used year-ago levels or, or some other metric that they use within their, their cooperative. But uh, telling the farmers that they need to cut by that percentage and that level would become their basically quota level. And they'll be paid typical market pricing for any milk delivered within the quota. For any milk delivered above the quota, they couldn't assure them of any type of pricing. It will be based on whatever they can get from the market, which might be zero. And some of the milk buyers actually said, we won't pay you anything for milk delivered above your base level or above your quota level. So there's, there's a strong incentive for dairy farmers to cut back milk production very quickly here in the U.S. These programs went into place in either late April uh, or May 1st. Dairy farmers are culling more cows. The weekly slaughter numbers are running 7 to 11% above year-ago levels the last couple of weeks. They are cutting back on 
quality of the rations to, to try to reduce milk production. They're drying off some cows early. They are shifting from milking three times a day to two times a day. And we haven't seen all of the cooperatives, all of the milk buyers try to do something like this at the same time in the past. So it's hard to try to estimate how much of an impact it'll have at a national basis. We've seen it on a regional basis before when uh, we've had an oversupply and uh, a lack of processing capacity in California. The cooperatives out there instituted programs like this. But it's not clear how quickly U.S. farmers will be able to slow that production down. Uh, so there's, there's questions around what exactly supply looks like here in May, June, and July. And now it's over to Dublin for Nate's colleague Liam Fenton for this week's look at the global dairy markets. Despite the negativity that we've seen for dairy since the beginning of the coronavirus shutdown, um, we have been experiencing of late uh, support and even strengthening of prices, I guess, in, in dairy for both butter and skim of powder. Uh, end users continue to look to try and lock in long-term prices and processors continue to back off the market leading to the price action we have seen of strengthening in prices. We've seen quarter three butter rally about 170 euros to the 3020 level, quarter four up about 100 euros a ton to 3075 level and quarter one then of the of next year trading uh, 3250 which is up about 80 100 euros on the week. Skim of powder has been in the same relative pattern uh, speaking uh, quarter three up to 2010 by 40 euros uh, quarter four up to 2100 up about 75 euros and quarter one up about 100 110 euros to the 2210 level way continues around the 720 level thanks liam we'll talk to you again next week and that's it for another show in the UK, we have no border between Scotland and England, and there's been a bit of a divergence over the lockdown this week. It's still firmly in place in Scotland, but in England, they can now drive to tourist spots. So I'm not sure if that means a quick rebuild of Hadrian's Wall, which is an old Roman wall, totally in England. Funny how the Romans built it to keep the Scots out, and now we need it to keep out the English. And the total irony of that is I'm English, but I live in Scotland. Anyway, it's heartening to see some lifting of the restrictions in some places and heartwarming stories about people going out for the first time in months. Let's just hope we don't see a big secondary spike in cases because of it. And let's also hope we can get together at an event in the not-too-distant future and say hello and share a cup of coffee that will probably spill down our masks. Next week we have interviews already lined up, but I won't say who they are just in case something happens. You never know. Hopefully you all have a good week, take care, stay safe, hope you're able to get out and enjoy some nice weather, and as always, thanks for listening.